Good afternoon, church. If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to spend some time together in God's Word. My name is Tim Owens. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And if you are just joining us, we are about two months into a series on the book of Acts. A very exciting series, in my opinion, one of the most exciting books in the New Testament. And just last week, Ron took us through Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray when a man who had been lame from birth, he was more than 40 years old, and he had been lame from birth, physically unable to provide for himself at all, he turned to Peter and John and asked them for money. And Peter famously responded, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And Peter takes him by the hand and raises him up. And this man was fully healed. And the text tells us in verse 8 that he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and loudly praising God. Now you can imagine that this spectacle of the man who was lame, jumping and dancing and shouting and praising, it drew the attention of the crowd and the temple that day, and Peter seizes that opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to this gathered crowd. So today, we're going to be looking at the text of Peter's sermon in chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. So let's take a moment and read the text together, and then we'll pray and begin. So please read with me Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11 and going to the end of the chapter. While he, that is the lame man, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back 
that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Father, we are keenly aware this afternoon of our need for the help of the Holy Spirit to hear this text rightly and to apply it to our lives. Father, this text, in this text, Peter told the Jewish people that all of the prophets whom they had been reading their entire lives were pointing them to Jesus. And still when Jesus came, they did not recognize him. Father, please do not let that happen to us. Please open our eyes through the reading and the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. As you are probably aware, the largest desert in the world is the Sahara Desert. It covers almost the entire northern half of Africa, and that desert is roughly the size of the continental United States. So stop and think about that. If you drove from California to New York City and the entire drive was in the desert, then you are starting to grasp the size and the scale of the Sahara Desert. Now, just recently, I was, I was really shocked and surprised. I was reading an article. It was summarizing the findings of a study done by the British Geological Survey and the findings of this study, what they found as they were studying the geography of the Sahara Desert, is that just beneath the surface of the Sahara Desert lies one of the largest aquifers in the world. So one of the largest reserves of fresh water in the world is under the Sahara Desert. They, they actually estimate that it would be enough water, if it was efficiently used, it would be enough water to sustainably provide water for drinking and agriculture for all of the people in northern Africa. So if you know anything about Africa, you know that water has always been a massive problem for that continent. There are an estimated 300 million people in Africa who do not have reliable access to clean drinking water. Now, we know that due to a complex array of political and historic factors, the governments of several countries have either been not willing or not able 
to create the infrastructure that they need to access the water. So what I want to draw your attention to is what is a tragic, really a tragic juxtaposition of millions of people, whole communities in desperate need of clean drinking water, when just below the surface, there is abundant clean water available. But, but due to various failures, they're not accessing that water. I believe that this picture can begin to give us just a small glimpse of the spiritual reality in the world today. A, a, a small glimpse of what it's like for us to know that God has made his abundant love, his rich and generous provision available to us in Christ. And there are far more than 300 million people walking around this moment in desperate need of what God offers to us in Christ. Friends, the Bible portrays, as we heard Ron preach last week, the Bible portrays God as a generous God. He, he's rich in mercy and kindness. He's not poor. He's, he's rich. He's wealthy with these things. He has these things in abundance. He is portrayed as ready and willing to meet our needs. He's abounding in steadfast love. And in Christ, God is moving toward us to unlock the floodgates of all of that blessing. The aquifers of God's blessing are available to us. They have been available to everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. And there are millions walking by thirsty. And scripture often uses the analogy of water to describe God's ability to refresh us and sustain us. Jesus is described as living water. Water is a symbol of God's blessing and provision, a symbol of spiritual life and vitality. And God never runs dry. This world that we live in, on the other hand, it is a wasteland, spiritually speaking. It is a desert. As John Payne said at Celebration California last fall, how many spiritually dehydrated people do you know? Africa has a problem with physical water, and it's a problem that we should feel compassion for. Every community on earth has a desperate problem with spiritual dryness. In our text today, Peter's going to tell us where the water is. We live in a desert. God has abundant provision to heal and restore and the Bible is full of prophetic promises about what that restoration looks like. It is abundant. It is beautiful. It is beyond our wildest dreams. But how do we get there? How do we get from where we are here today in Pasadena in 2023 to the abundant provision that God has for our community and for us individually? Put another way, how do we qualify to receive the blessings of God? as described in scripture. Last week, the lame man was healed and he went leaping through the temple, praising God. What is broken inside of you? What is broken inside of me? 
That's what this passage is about. We could summarize the main point of Peter's sermon this way. The blessings of God's covenant come to those who trust in Jesus' name and repent of their sins. Oh, I know these phrases are so familiar to us. Trust in Jesus' name and repent of your sins. Oh, we need to meditate on these phrases together, church family. We need to think deeply about the meaning of these phrases because the blessings of God come to us through these things. The thirsty people that we meet every day at work and at school and in our neighborhoods, the blessings of God is what they need spiritual life. And this is the pathway. This is the means of God for delivering those things to us, trusting in Jesus' name and repenting of our sins. That's where the living water comes from. Our text gives us two main points today. Point number one, faith in Jesus' name in verses 11 through 16. And point number two, the blessings of repentance. And verses 17 through 26. Let's jump right into point number one. Faith in Jesus' name. In verses 11 through 16, Peter is answering a very simple question. He's answering the question, how did this man, who the whole crowd knew that they walked past him every day when they went into the temple by this particular gate, how did this man that you know, how did he get healed? It's been 40 years. He's been sitting here, obviously lame. How did he get healed? He's going to explain the miracle the crowd just witnessed. And the first thing that he has got to do is to correct the crowd's misinterpretation of the event. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? (laughs) Is this a silly question? If I saw the man get healed, I would wonder at it. (laughs) It's, It's a little bit like the question of the angels. Oh, disciples, why do you stand staring into heaven from Acts chapter 1? Well, it's like Jesus just ascended. You know, this is kind of unique. All right. So men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? But then he gets serious. Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power, or piety, we have made him walk. The first crucial thing that Peter has got to do in this sermon is to clarify that he and John do not deserve any of the credit for the healing of this man. Peter can read the crowd, and he sees something that is concerning to him. He sees a red flag. He sees all of these people gathering around and ogling at him, him and John. He can tell that their awe and their wonder is directed at him. And he does not sinfully allow the spotlight to stay on him for even one second. Notice what he says. It was not our power or our piety that made this man well. So the power to heal didn't come from Peter and John, but also, and this is interesting, 
it wasn't because of their piety. Do you know what that means? It wasn't because of their godliness. It wasn't because they were such good Christians that God listened to their prayer in a way unique from the way he would listen to any other of his children's prayer. That He's saying nothing about us deserves credit for this man's healing. Folks, we have to pause here for a moment. This refusal to take credit It's not incidental to the preaching of the gospel. This is not incidental. Peter couldn't have skipped this point before he went on to preach the gospel to this crowd. Peter is about to argue that faith in Jesus healed this man. That is, believing something about Christ, looking to Christ in a certain way, healed this man. And if the crowd is amazed by Peter, if the crowd is looking to Peter, then they will not look to Christ. Oh, how I wish that this was a problem that we left in the first century. But it is not, it is not leaders love to take credit Even in the church, crowds love to put leaders and speakers on pedestals. Even in the church, this cannot happen. When men take credit for the gifts of God, Jesus fades into the background and the people who follow them are led astray. When men take credit for the gifts of God, the gospel gets distorted. The gospel is the good news that we bring nothing to the table except our brokenness and sin. By faith in Christ alone, we are made whole and adopted into a new family and given gifts to build up the church and called into God's mission and guaranteed eternal life. Peter's vehement rejection of any credit for this man's healing, it prepares the way for the crowd to hear about the real Savior, who is Jesus, not Peter. So first, Peter and John didn't heal this man. So how did he get healed? Because it sure looked like Peter and John healed him. Peter and John were the ones walking into the temple. Peter's the one who looked at him and said, Stand up and walk. Well, Peter's going to answer the question in verses 13 through 16. But these verses can be a little bit confusing to understand. We don't get a real direct and clear answer to our question, how did this man get healed, until we get to verse 16. And I actually suspect that if I was Luke and I sat down to write out the account of this man's healing, or if you sat down to write out the account of this man's healing, you would have skipped straight from verse 12 to verse 16. We didn't heal him, him, and in 16, he was healed by faith in Jesus' name. But we need to stop and ask ourselves, what is Peter doing in verses 13 through 15. What comes out of Peter's mouth next when he says, we didn't heal him, let me tell you how it happened. Well, in verse 13, he starts this way. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is the first answer to the question, how did this man get healed? This man got healed because Jesus has been glorified. In the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament are constantly thinking, where is Jesus right now? What is Jesus doing? 
The explanation for the miraculous things that happen in the church, the explanation for the conversion of even one center, sinner goes back to what is Jesus doing right now? Well, he tells us. That's Peter's top concern. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Jesus is not idle this afternoon, church family. Jesus is not resting, hoping that the church will make something of the mission that he's left to us. Jesus is actively ruling and reigning. This this man was healed because Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God, and he is exercising his power in and through his people to build his church. How did the man get healed? Not because of Peter, because Peter was an instrument in the glorified Christ's hands. That's how he got healed. I don't think we think like this very often. I don't think we pause and consider when we enter a difficult Tuesday where there's a lot to do on our to-do list, or when we're facing a challenge raising our children, or when we're facing a difficult class at school, or a conflict with a friend. We don't stop and think, where is Jesus right now, and what is he doing? A substantial part of your hope and my hope is in the fact that Jesus is not idle, Jesus is very much at work. In fact, the only reason that what we're doing right now has any meaning is because Jesus has promised to preach through the preaching of his word. That's what we're doing right now. All of you did not come today, I hope, to hear Tim Owens preach. You came today to hear the risen Christ preached. That is what preaching is, exalting the risen and reigning Christ. That's the first part of Peter's answer. And then Peter goes on to cover some very familiar ground. Look at 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. This should be familiar logic to us from Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Just a couple of weeks, we heard that sermon. In that sermon, Peter dwells on the guilt of the crowd. That whole sermon deals with the contrast between who God revealed Jesus to be, the Christ and the Lord of glory, and how the Jewish people treated Jesus. They betrayed and killed him. That's the whole substance of Peter's first sermon. But in Peter's second sermon here in chapter 3, this is a small point. This is only part of Peter's overall point about how the crippled man got healed. So we need to follow very carefully Peter's logic. Remember, the crowd's question is, how did he get healed? Peter's going to tell them he got healed by Jesus, but the crowd thinks Jesus is dead. They, They actually participated in voting for his death. So how did he heal this man. So he has to explain in verses 13 through 15 that though Jesus, though the Jewish people killed him, God has now raised him and glorified him as we read about in verse 13. He's alive and reigning. But the, what we get to in verse 16 is so important for us this afternoon. Peter has established that Jesus is not dead. He is risen. He is reigning. He is exerting his power despite the best efforts of the Jewish people to kill him. But the question is, what means did the risen and reigning Christ use to heal this man? 
Exactly how did this man get healed? We understand, okay, Jesus is powerful. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. But what is the means that Jesus uses to bring his power to bear in our lives or to bring his power to bear in this man's life to heal him? And the answer to that is in verse 16. Let's read it together. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Faith in Jesus' name made this man strong. That is an interesting phrase. If you hadn't grown up in the church or been reading your Bibles consistently for years, I think that would be a strange phrase. Faith in Jesus' name. Why didn't Peter just say faith in Jesus and leave it at that? Faith in Jesus' name made this man strong. When was the last time you stopped to consider what is meant by the phrase, in Jesus' name? We often end our prayers with this phrase. The Bible is full of reference, full of reference to the content of Jesus' name. Worthy is his name. He's been given a name above every name, as we heard in our worship time, full of content. This man was lame for 40 years, and he was healed in an instant by faith in Jesus' name. Don't you want to know how faith can bring such power to bear on your life? We have to stop and consider, what does Peter tell us about Jesus' name? When you reread chapter 3 and 4, in light of this pronouncement, that faith in Jesus' name unlocks a unique power from the risen and reigning Christ, you reread chapters 3 and 4, what you're going to notice is that Peter uses a slew of names to refer to Jesus. In verses 16, 18, and 20, he calls him the Christ. We know from a couple of weeks ago, this is a significant title in the book of Acts. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one, the Davidic king who was going to come and deliver his people. Then in verses 13, 26, and 18, he refers to Christ as the glorified servant and the suffering servant. Oh, pieces are starting to fall into place. This is a significant category pulling mainly from the book of Isaiah. Chapters 42, 49, 50, and 52 are the suffering servant songs. So Jesus isn't just a person who lived in the first century. He is the predicted suffering servant, the one who would suffer in place of God's people to redeem them. Then he calls him in verse 14, the holy and righteous one. The holy, he's uniquely set apart for God's purposes. That's holiness. And he is perfectly righteous. Who else is perfectly righteous? Please don't let the perfect righteousness and holiness of Christ become mundane to us. Jesus' qualifications as perfectly righteous were the only reason he was able to save us. Then in verse 15, this precious title, the author of life. If there's somehow for the author of life's power and influence to come to bear on your life, does that make you want to sit up and pay attention? Someone who can be called the author of life, who's currently at the right hand of the throne of God, 
He can somehow impact your life today. Verse 16 tells us that's by faith in his name. Then in verse 22, he's called the Moses-like prophet. Then in verse 25, he's called the offspring of Abraham. These categories are full of Old Testament meaning. What is Peter doing here? I think he's telling us what it means to exercise faith in Jesus' name. It, it means not just that we assent, not just that we have warm, fuzzy feelings toward Jesus. It means that we wholeheartedly embrace all that Jesus is revealed to be in his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. That we trust his identity and his character as revealed to us in God's word. That is why taking the Lord's name in vain is such a serious offense. If we say the name without humility before the majesty of the risen and exalted Christ, if we say the name without gratefulness for his mercy, if we say it without awe before his exaltation, without submission to his absolute lordship, then we take the name in vain, meaning we dishonor him. Do you want to dishonor the author of life? What are the implications of dishonoring the author of life? Friends, there will be a day when every person who ever lived will suddenly be made aware of the full significance of Jesus' name. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. I did not know the worship team was going to read that passage this morning, but it is God's providence that they did. I want you to note how similar these verses are to the text we have before us today in Acts chapter 3. Paul says, therefore, in verse 9, and that's because Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So who's not going to bow on that day? No one. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day will be a fearful day for those who ignored or minimized or rejected Jesus during their lifetime. But for those who exercise faith in his name, then all that Jesus is, all that is encapsulated and meant by the names of Christ and the testimony of Christ that we find in Scripture will be brought to bear for us to bless us What happened to the man who was crippled from birth? Verse 16 says that faith in Jesus' name made him strong. By faith, the weak was made strong with Jesus' strength. That's part of Jesus' name. He's strong. And he delights to give us his strength when we trust in him. That is how faith works. When you look to Jesus, all that he is comes to you to bless you. Now, in verse 17, Peter's going to transition from explaining how the lame man got healed to telling the crowd and us what that miracle means for our life. 
What does the story of the lame man mean for you and me here this afternoon? Peter is going to tell us in verses 17 to 26, and that brings us to point number two, the blessings of repentance. Verses 17 and 18 really set the stage for the main point that Peter is going to make in verses 19 through 26. In 17 and 18, Peter says that he knows that the Jewish people and their rulers were acting in ignorance when they killed Jesus. But note what Peter does not mean. He doesn't mean that they were innocent in regard to Jesus' death. Both the tone of Peter's accusations in verses 13 through 15, remember verse 15, you killed the author of life. Peter Peter clearly holds these people accountable for their actions. And the fact that in verse 19, he's going to call them to repent, it's clear that he's not exonerating them from responsibility for how they acted. No, What's happening here is Peter is alluding to what in the New Testament is a common theme. When we don't know who Jesus is, it's a symptom of something. It's a symptom of our estrangement from God due to sin. In John 1 verse 10, John says this, He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. What is John saying there? John is indicting the world. He's saying the world was so twisted and dark and broken because of sin that when Jesus, the one who created the world, came and stood among us, we didn't recognize him. That's how bad it was. In mankind's relationship with God, ignorance is never an excuse. Psalm 19, which was read today as our call to worship, says even the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The very creation is testifying to us day and night about God. Ignorance is no excuse. Romans 1.18 says that if we are ignorant of God, it is because we have suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness. John Stott explains verse 17 this way. Peter's purpose in saying this was neither to excuse their sin nor to imply that forgiveness was unnecessary but to show that it was possible. Peter was echoing the Old Testament distinction between sins of ignorance and sins of presumption. Now look with me at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So in contrast to the ignorance of the Jews, God had a purpose in Jesus' death. The Jews didn't know what they were doing, but God very much knew what he was doing. So what was God doing? What was his main purpose? What was the main thrust of his action in sending his one and only son to the world to die at the hand of sinners? The last eight verses of our text today are going to answer that question. And we're going to find three main things. First, God's intentions toward us in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Second, there is a command. And third, there is a warning. We're going to take these one at a time. The command is right here in verse 19. Repent. That is the command. That is the application of this text. Repent of your sins. But before we deal with that, I want you to meditate with me, to dwell on the blessings of repentance that Peter enumerates here. What was God intending to accomplish in Jesus' death? Look at the second half of verse 19. That your sins 
may be blotted out. Folks, please don't skip past this. Please don't rush over these words. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, the human condition? What do you think of when you hear the phrase, human nature? Even non-Christians use these phrases to talk about the weakness and brokenness and frailty of humanity. We say things like, oh, it's just human nature. I'm, I'm only human. Let me tell you something. The problem is much worse than that. In verse 26, Peter is going to look at this diverse crowd, thousands of people, and he's going to say, the Lord sent Jesus to turn every one of you from your wickedness. Look at the end of verse 26. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter doesn't know these people. Peter doesn't know what's going on in their lives. But Peter is rock solid certain that the biggest problem for every single one of them is alive and active wickedness in their heart. There is a wickedness inside us apart from Christ. A lawless, selfish, destructive tendency that we inherited from Adam and Eve. It's an impulse that resists life, that verse 15 tells us caused us to kill the author of life. And listen, it's a virus that kills its host. That's what James chapter 1 says. When sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. That's what's alive in each one of us. Folks, do you know this, the feeling of being dissatisfied with yourself? Deeply dissatisfied with yourself. You might even say disgusted with yourself. Have you been confronted with the fundamental futility of trying to make things in your life better in your own efforts? These feelings, these are indicators of a reality, a deep reality inside of us. We are fundamentally broken. The lame man could not physically walk. Our problem is much more significant than that. Our hearts are infected. And the Bible calls this problem sin. And Peter says in the second half of verse 19, your sins can be blotted out. Blotted out. You know what that word means? Erased. Eradicated. That's what that word means. This is unspeakably good news. Verse 20. What else comes from repentance? Verse 20a. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Are you interested in refreshment for your soul? Can you even imagine the quality of refreshment that might come from the presence of God? What kind of refreshment does the triune God enjoy? What is the atmosphere of the fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit? Would you like to share in that? The Greek word here means rest, relief, respite, or as it's translated here, refreshment. So not only does God intend to heal you, to solve your deepest problem by blotting out your sins and making your heart whole, 
He also offers you daily, ongoing, life-sustaining refreshment that impacts us at the soul level. Not just fixing our body like the lame man. What price could you put on having a, a refreshed soul? On having access to daily divine refreshment? And look at the second half of verse 20 through 21. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. These verses are orienting us toward our future. Peter's preaching is always oriented toward the return of Jesus Christ. Our eyes ought to be fixed on that day. We ought to be looking to that day with eager excitement and longing. In Christ, let me summarize, God wants to blot out your sins, to heal your deepest brokenness, the wickedness that has that operation in each of our hearts. He can erase that and eradicate it. Then he offers you access to daily soul-level refreshment, and then he says, what's coming in your future is a day when the risen and reigning Christ is going to come and restore all things. Do you see how Peter conceives of the Christian life? For Peter, the Christian life is something that is worth leaping and rejoicing and praising God about. This is the meaning of the healing miracle. The man got his legs back, but he still had to walk through this dark and broken world. Who would not trade the working parts of their legs and ankles so that they could have a whole heart and soul? In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said. You would pluck out your eye or cut off your hand in order to receive these kinds of benefits. That's how valuable they are. But you don't have to do that because Jesus paid the price for you on the cross. And when you exercise faith in his name, that is how those benefits flow to you. Now look at verses 25 and 26. We're going to skip the section about Moses just for a moment. In 25 and 26, he says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Do you see yourself in the text? Are you part of one of the families of the earth? In Abraham's offspring, that is Jesus. Offspring is singular. Paul makes a lot of that argument elsewhere in the New Testament. Through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, every family in the earth, on the earth will be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. At the end of verse 25, Peter references a promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 3 and again in Genesis chapter 2 that he will bless every family and nation through one of Abraham's descendants. And Peter says that promise was part of God's covenant. He, and then he goes on to say it was inten his intention to bless you through Abraham's offspring, through Jesus Folks, this is connecting us to the blessings of the covenant. Are you aware of the magnitude of the blessings of God's covenant? Under the Mosaic covenant, there were amazing blessings promised to God's people. He promised them peace, 
fertility, health, safety, vitality, healthy crops, a thriving ecosystem with, where the rain comes at its appointed time and in the right measure and in the right season of the year. The covenant blessings were nothing less than life at its very best. The Jews called it shalom, the way things were meant to be before sin entered and wrecked it. It's the overflow of a loving, generous, abundant God to his covenant people. But there was a massive problem. The blessings of the Mosaic Covenant were conditional. To receive the blessings of the covenant, the nation of Israel had to perfectly obey God's law, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed. The disease at the heart of the human condition, this wickedness that Peter refers to at work in every heart, made it impossible to obey God's law. And now Peter is telling the crowd that God has opened a new way to receive the covenant blessings. And that brings us back to the only command in the text. How do you receive those blessings? Verse 19 says, repent turn back. How do we access the living water that is just out of reach beneath the desert floor? How do we access the massive blessing of a generous, kind, and loving God when we are sinful and he is holy? God has made a way. Jesus has perfectly met the righteous requirements of the law, and now the only thing that we must do is turn Aren't you glad that Peter added the extra phrase, repent therefore, and then he explains, turn back, turn back, turn away from your own way of life. It is so simple, but it can be so difficult. How hard and how easy is it? Do you have to earn your way to God today, brothers and sisters? Do you have to meet the demands of the law? No, you do not. Jesus perfectly met the demands of the law. But is there still a condition? Yes, you have to turn away from your own way of life and turn to the Savior provided for you and place your whole faith and trust in all that he is for you, you have to agree with Jesus' evaluation of your life. You don't have to be perfect. You have to repent. You don't have to achieve moral perfection. You have to change the direction of your life and walk towards him. And when you do that, when you exercise real faith in Jesus' name and turn away from your own way of life to follow him, then all that God is for you, all that he has for you, is turned toward you in blessing. But there is a warning in this text. It's in verses 22 and 23, and I'm going to read it for us. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Peter says that Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophecy in Deuteronomy, that God would raise up another prophet like Moses, a greater prophet, 
But that, that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, it came with a massive warning. Those who don't listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. Now, friends, the emphasis of this text is on God's intention to bless all those who will turn to him with repentance for their sins and trust and faith in Jesus' name. But Peter's warning shows us what is at stake in this decision. It shows us the significance of our response to Jesus. The choice before us is either to turn to Christ in repentance and faith and receive the blessing of God, or if we don't respond to Jesus, then the disease of sin will inexorably work its way to its natural conclusion, which is eternal death and separation from God. Please don't ignore the warning of the text. The worship team can come on up. How do we apply this text to our lives this afternoon? There's a lot here. How do we apply it to our lives? Well, I have two encouragements for you. First, Christian, meditate on the blessings that come to you in Christ. Our value system is still tainted by the world, is it not? We so easily begin to long for lesser things and wish for a different kind of Savior. Did you notice the interesting phrase at the end of verse 20? Would you look at it with me? Peter says something interesting about Jesus, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Why did he say it that way? It's because his audience had been waiting for the Messiah, but they were looking for a different Messiah. They were looking for a political savior, someone to save them from domination by the Roman Empire, to return the glory days politically. We can't scoff at them because we are constantly tempted to look for a different savior. If you are reading this text today, if you are sitting listening to the preaching of this text today, and you are underwhelmed by the blessings that God gives to us through repentance and faith, it is not because those blessings are not magnificent. It is because your heart has been influenced yet again by the world's value system. It's because you've been lulled, you've been deceived into wishing that this text said something like this. Repent and you will be made wealthy. And you will find romantic fulfillment. And you will receive prestige. And the world will love you and everything will be easy for you in this life. How easy is it to wish that that's what this text said. When, we, when our heart gets into that place, it's because we are massively underestimating the true blessings of repentance and faith. Your soul can be healed. You can receive refreshment from the presence of the Lord on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And one day, the comforts that we were made to desire the way life was always meant to be, King Jesus is going to come back and restore all things. Would you meditate on the blessings of repentance? Would you commit to meditate on these things? Do you struggle with guilt, shame, or insecurity? The cure for that is that your sins have been blotted out. The Bible says that true freedom is freedom from slavery to sin and shame. Jesus 
accomplished that. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. Is that good news for you this afternoon? If your sins have been blotted out, you don't have to hide. You can honestly admit where you fail, where you're weak, because God's estimation of you is not impacted. There is no condemnation in your sins any longer. You can go about receiving the refreshment and energy and encouragement that you need from the Holy Spirit so that you can become more and more like your Savior. In Christ, you have access to soul-level refreshment. Are you, I'm tempted to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm not going to. Are you weary, tired, or discouraged this afternoon? Is there too much going on in your life for you to handle in your own strength? Good. That means you're viewing yourself properly. For those of you who just said, no, I think I can handle everything, you need to come back to this text and realize that you, in fact, are weak apart from the risen and reigning Christ. If, if you are weary and tired today, refreshment, that word, it means respite, relief, rest. Lift up your eyes to the one who can give you refreshment in your soul. In Christ, we have hope for the future. Are you discouraged about the future? When you look over the coming months and years, are you worried about them? Is your health a concern to you? You look out at the future and you are, you are fearful of the future because your body is wasting away. Yes, that might be true. But come back to the blessings of repentance. When you place your faith in Christ and you turn away from your sins, you repent of your sins, Peter says that one day Jesus is going to come back and he is going to restore all things. Your future is bright, brother and sister. If you have forgotten that, then you will not live today the way you should live it. You will lose your joy and your motivation for today if you forget that one day you're going to be a part of that kingdom where nothing goes wrong where there are no tears, where there is no war, no sadness. Meditate on the blessings that come to you in Christ. And second and finally, would you practice repentance? If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord today, that is, if you've never placed your faith in his name and have never truly made the decision to turn away from your own way of life to follow him in every aspect of your life, you can practice repentance for the first time in a fundamental way and be welcomed into the body of Christ. And your sins can be blotted out now and forever. Would you come talk to me if that is you, if you're not sure that you've never made that decision for Christ? But if you've been walking with Christ for years, you made that decision years ago, would you walk in a lifestyle of repentance? Practice, practice turning away from your own way, from attempting to please yourself, to satisfy yourself, to comfort yourself? Would you practice laying down your own desires and prioritizing the desires and needs of those around you? This is part of how the refreshment works. As we lay down our own prerogative and obey Jesus, the refreshment comes. That's what faith looks like on the ground. Would you practice walking in a lifestyle of repentance? The blessings of the covenant when we believe in Jesus' name and repent of our sins. And the, there could be nothing better than the blessings of this covenant. I encourage you to walk in these things. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, these eternal truths, this great good news that where we were weak and incapable and spiritually dead, you sent Christ to perfectly fulfill the requirements of the law on our behalf to die receiving the full penalty that we deserved for our sins and open the way for us to receive the, f- the flood of your blessings, the aquifer of millions of gallons of water of the blessing of the God of the universe is now open to us and you have told us the way. It is by repentance and faith. Lord, may those words not become mundane to us. I pray that each one of us would walk out of here with the words repentance and faith burning in our hearts, that we would walk in them and experience the good of the blotting out of our sins, the refreshment from you that you offer us each day, and our living hope that one day you're going to make all things new. I pray that you would do that afresh in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.